1: Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week our guest is the chair of the Democratic Party in Wisconsin, a key state this November, Ben Winkler. And remember, we love taking your questions. So write into Politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to add Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the links to our sponsors, Sleep Me, Magic Spoon, and Raycon in the show notes. We thank you for supporting these sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James, stunning, spectacular, smashing. Choose your adjective. The Ukrainian army's route of the fleeing Russians seems like a seminal moment. They recaptured thousands of square miles of territory in northeast Ukraine. You look at the map, and it's just amazing. And I think think we can agree. We've had some good guests on this show uh, about this issue. The courage and resolve of the Ukrainian army, bolstered by the long-range missiles supplied by the United States, Joe Biden has been their greatest ally, uh, has really, I think, uh, shifted the tide of this war. Our guest a few weeks ago, remember Stephen and the Russian expert, said if this offensive succeeded, it really could change the course uh, of this conflict. And our friend Ann Applebaum of The Atlantic wrote, it's realistic to consider Ukraine winning the war now. And for Putin, James, it seems to me this is devastating. Another huge intelligence failure, expectations were the major offense would come in the South, uh, underscored the weakness of the Russian army and its generals. James, this is, a, you know, this is not over. This is going to end tomorrow. But this is, this is good news.
2: It, it's superb news. And it is, you know, a ways to go, but is on the cusp of being one of the great foreign policy achievements any president's had in this century. In Quebec, I'm, I'm a little bit stunned to, if, if 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 this continues. Of course, we don't know. We always have to have the caveat. But, boy, it doesn't look very good for the Ruskies. I mean, they're on a the run, and you see the stories about the internal – people are just starting to attack Putin publicly without fear. I mean – it. There's something going on in the home front, in Russia. I'm not sure what it is, but there's something going on. The, the, the criticism of Putin has just been blistering and public.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, you know, I think you're absolutely right, uh, and that creates a real crisis in Moscow. How does Putin react? Does he mobilize? That's what he needs to do militarily, but that is extremely dicey for him politically. Does he escalate? Does he use weapons of mass destruction? And of course, most, most worrisome of all, would he resort to tactical nuclear weapons? That would, that would be a disaster. Uh, but Anne said, again, Ann Applebaum, for all of his evil and miscalculations, uh, and, and he's wrong, of course, he has acted rationally. Let's just hope that continues, and let's hope that Zelensky continues to push and move quickly but also realizes at some point there has to be some kind of a settlement once Russians have been pushed out of everything they took since February 24th.
2: No, it's, it's, uh, it, it's good news, and I, I don't think a lot of people were expecting this this soon. I, I, but sometimes they're a pleasant surprise. I think this, so far— <laughs> We can designate this as a pleasant surprise. Before, before we leave this, it's it just stunning the number of right-wing Republicans that are actually pulling for Putin. It's just stunning. that, that you, 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 how, could you pull, how could you pull for Putin but ask Tucker
1: Carlson or J.D. Vance or Donald Trump? I don't have an answer. Well, because he's an, he's an autocrat or dictator, and they, and they like that. I think that's a simple answer. Um, Let's switch topics to back home. I I, want to ask you a question. Lindsey Graham this week, most Republicans all around the country have been running away faster than you can... Uh, you know, say, run uh, from the abortion issue. Scrubbing their websites, uh, trying to fudge their position. Lindsey Graham this week uh, uh, announced uh, that he was going to propose a federal ban on any abortions after, most abortions, at least after 15 weeks. Do do you think Lindsey, which our friend Chris Buckley calls squiggly tea biscuit, do you think he's a Democratic mole, maybe? I think you're just stupid. Again, two
2: people that... At, at some point in their life, were decidedly not a joke, all right? Or, or have turned into a massive joke, Lindsey Graham and Rudy Giuliani. I, I can't think—at one time, Lindsey Graham had a, a kind of a reputation, all right, faded. Maybe it was unjustified. I think Rudy's reputation, to a large extent, was justified. And Trump has just made them into blabbering idiots, I, I, I don't know. And he didn't need this. It was the stupidest thing in the world. I mean, you'd be, you know, you're sitting there. that had this unexpectedly high inflation number. You had a terrible market, and Lindsey Graham comes in there and shits all over their message. I mean, he might be the MVP of this cycle. He really That's might. Right.
1: Yeah, uh, or a Democratic mole. Um, uh, I You know, I've talked to people this past week in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio, North Carolina, California— Every one of them says there's no question the abortion issue is cutting. Inflation and the economy are the most important issue, but abortion is cutting more than a little bit everywhere. And for Lindsay to highlight it this week uh, was, as you say, a, a great gift uh, to Democratic candidates all around the country. So so let me say something about the way political strategy works. So you take a poll and you say,
2: tell us what's the most important issues, and people will say the economy inflation, all right? I mean, abortion will be such and such. I've always viewed that's not the proper way to look at it, because, of course, the economy inflation is a huge issue to people. We're told and we notice every time somebody goes to the gas pump or the grocery store, they're reminded. However, people are not really sure that the Republicans have a better answer or that there is a better answer. How much Biden is to blame? I mean, it's a kind of confusing issue. Abortion is— a. It is a clean issue. If you, you vote one way, you will have the right. If you vote another way, the right will be taken away from you. So it's a little bit – I'm I'm always skeptical of these rankings of issues because mm-hmm. if you ask someone in my home state of, of New Orleans, do you think the humidity in the summer is a big issue? People say, yeah, it's, it, it's hot and humid in the summer, but that's not going to drive voting behavior. I know it's a, it's a little bit of an extreme example, but – but this idea that we rank issues by voters' responses is, is not totally valid it, because there has to be a clear policy distinction. There's a clear policy distinction between, you know, choice between Republicans and Democrats. I don't know what the Republican position is on inflation, to be honest with you, and I don't think they do either. Yeah, to be they don't like even it. Even more. Yeah, they don't,
1: well, I don't like it either. Yeah. Um, but, and, and I'll tell you, in two key states, Michigan and California, there's an abortion uh, question on, on the ballot, a referendum. And I'll tell you the importance of that, James. I think that could mean the difference in as many, as many, literally as, as five or six uh, house seats, at least four or five house seats. And that, that, might, be, that might be decisive. But anyway, um, we'll be, you know, uh, Ben, by the way, Ben Wickler uh, is going to be a great guest. Okay. James, you're across the pond in London where all eyes are focused uh, on the Queen and the New King. Tell us about it. Well, to uh, take my channel, my inner Edward
2: O. this is London. All right. So, just to give our listeners a context, I'm at the Duke's Hotel in St. James. I'm literally maybe 400 yards from the palace. And you, 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 you can't walk on the streets now. If you go to um, Piccadilly or St. James or any of the places, and I, I don't know where people are going. They're blocking off places. But, and this is a, a, a crass analogy to make. I mean, of course, she's 96 years old. She died. It's it's a little bit like Mardi Gras. I mean, the streets are being blocked off. There are restraints on the side of the road. I mean, it, it it's... It's really kind of a, an amazing place to be in all of the shops. Like like at Fortnum & Mason, which is one of my favorite stores in the world, they've had all black in the display windows saying, out of respect to Queen Elizabeth, we're going to leave this up for an indeterminate amount of time. And that's the same thing if you go to all of the like men's toiletry stores on Jeremy Street. Uh, the merchant class loves the monarchy. So I, I was, I happen to be in the context at my family reunion in County Monaghan, which is right on the border with Oma in Northern Ireland, which was the center of the Troubles. And uh, there's a little, you know, and I was in Dublin. Uh, people like the Queen well enough, but they're not that broken up about anything bad about the British monarch in in Ireland. I can promise you that. <laughs> <laughs> but she seemed like uh, uh, she seemed like she really tried to put the best, you know, Britain's best foot forward and I, I think she's being remembered finally. Uh, Macron had the best line she told it to, to, to the, the British she was your queen to the rest of the world she was the queen and when you said the queen you, you didn't think they were talking about the queen of Sweden or Denmark or Netherlands anything you knew who they were talking about <laughs>
1: Hey, James, our guest is the chairman of the Wisconsin Democratic Party, considered by many the best party chair in the country. The Badger State is deeply purple with a big Senate and a governor's race coming up. Ben, it's good to talk to you. If we had this conversation 12 years ago or six years ago, a few days after Labor Day, you'd have said, boy, the Democrats are ready to beat Ron Johnson. You know, uh, he's, he's weak. Uh, And then every time he seems to come on strong with a slashing burning campaign at the end and win, why do you think it's different this time? Why can Mandela Barnes win?
0: The huge difference between right now and 2010 and 2016 is that at this point in the race, in both of those years, about a third of Wisconsin voters did not have their minds made up about Ron Johnson himself. He kind of kept his head down in the Senate. If you were paying attention, he said all kinds of stuff. But frankly, he did change after that. In a 2016 election, he was supposed to lose. He came back from the dead after a 20 million dollar cash infusion from a couple of billionaires. Uh, he then passed a special tax break that netted those two people 215 million dollars. And I don't know about you, I nobody I know got a 215 million dollar tax break. This was tilted towards the ultra ultra wealthy. And uh, as as an ad that's currently on the air in Wisconsin points out, he also gave a tax cut to himself. So he kind of showed his true colors whose side he was on. And now he's talking about cutting Social Security and Medicare and he's against negotiating lower drug prices. He just is out for himself, his wealthy donors, special interests, and against the middle class. And we've been communicating about this so intensively that only 9%, less than 1 in 10 Wisconsin voters, at this point, doesn't know what they think about Ron Johnson. So it is a sea change from the previous election cycles. Wisconsin has seen Ron Johnson for who he is, and they don't like it.
1: Ben, I, he's a terrible senator. I, I certainly agree with that. And I think actually a lot of senators, including some Republicans, would. But you know what the Johnson playbook is. He's going paint, to paint Mandela Barnes as a left-wing Bernie bro, crime coddling, Medicare for all. And I saw in that uh, University of uh, Marquette Law School poll that 41% of Wisconsin voters don't really know that much about Mandela Barnes, even though he's Lieutenant Governor. So you know it's gonna be a slash and burn sleazy
0: campaign. Uh, that's worked in the past. Those attacks are already on the air. He's, he's bringing everything he's got. You can tell he's desperate because he's grasping at straws at this point. The key thing that Mandela Barnes has to do and that he is doing is to actually explain not just where he stands. Of course, he supports public safety and supports law enforcement and you know, wants to make sure everybody's safe in our state, but also point out why Ron Johnson's doing what he's doing. There's an ad with Mandela, and he says, it's that time of year again. They're going to try to make me look dangerous because they know I'm always going to bat for you. And he's uh, he's actually hitting, baseballs, hitting baseball after baseball as he says it. But his point is, no matter where you live in Wisconsin, no matter what your background is, Almost everyone, working families across our state have more in common with each other than they ever will, with someone like Ron Johnson who is out of touch, self-serving, and on the side of the, the ultra ultra wealthy who bankroll his campaigns. And,
1: and, and Barnes has it, an backed, backed off, off the Medicare. Barnes has backed off the Medicare for all, and some of the other positions that they're going to criticize. Yeah, he's,
0: he's running on like bringing down the cost of prescription drugs. It's a it's a this is a very common sense Wisconsin working families oriented campaign. And it's a you know his positions are pretty similar to Tammy Baldwin's who you might remember <laughs> won in a landslide in 2018. Uh, the the contrast here is not uh, a kind of left versus right so much as somebody who understands working families. As he, as he points out all the time on the campaign trail, his dad was a third shift UAW auto worker. His mom taught public school, and he understands how hard families have to work. Ron Johnson, meanwhile, was set up with a, a giant company by his billionaire father-in-law and has been shoveling tax cuts to to people who own big corporations, which is Frankly, not many Wisconsinites.
1: Ben, I'm going to turn this over to James. One final question. The governor's race, Tony Evers, the incumbent, that's equally tight right now. How does that differ from the Senate race? The, the, the
0: striking thing with Tim Michaels, it's almost the reverse in terms of, of public awareness from the Senate race. In the Senate race, everyone knows and loathes Ron Johnson. They're, they're now meeting Mandela Barnes. In the governor's race... People know that Tony Evers goes to bat for people like them. If you ask in polls, does he care about people like me, 40% say no, 54% say yes. He He's actually introduced himself to the state and they know where he stands, he paves their roads, he gives you know funds tax cuts and invests in small businesses. Tim Michaels is an unknown quantity for most people. And what we have found is that when people see the videotape of him, and it, it's I, I wanna underscore, it's actually seeing Tim Michaels say this stuff. When they see Tim Michaels saying on tape, that he does not want exceptions for rape or incest in the total abortion ban that he completely backs. When they see him saying that gay people shouldn't be able to go around outside, uh, he said they can, they can leave it in their homes. Uh, when they see him talking about stuff like uh, letting teenagers buy AR-15s without background checks or waiting periods, he's so extreme and radical. And our governor is just Mr. Common Sense. Wakes up, does the right thing every day. That's a contrast that really works for us. And I think if you look across the country, as well as in Wisconsin right now, uh, people can believe it because they've seen it with their own eyes that there are some Republicans, the the extreme fringe of the Republican Party, uh, President Biden calls them MAGA Republicans, who are just out of step with the general public. That's who Republicans picked, a a full-on Trumpist extremist to be their candidate for governor. And that's not what Wisconsinites are looking for. James Carmel
1: so-
2: so you have a, a, I think a justified reputation for being one of the best state party chairs and running one of the best state parties in the United States. Assume that one of our listeners, and I hope I'm correct, decides they're going to send a thousand dollars. Tell them where to send the money to and give us a general idea of what you would do with that thousand dollars what 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 kind of return on investment would a donor give get by sending a thousand dollars to the Wisconsin Democratic Party.
0: What a delightful question! So uh, <laughs> I thought you might like. <laughs> it's, right guess, middle,
1: it it's right down the middle, Ben. Yeah, it's right down the middle. Let me tell you something, bro. You
2: come on this goddamn show, we are gonna knock you down, with a hot <laughs> hot
0: So, dear listener, you're you're uh, you're getting out your phone. You're going to wisdem's slash donate. WISDEMS.org slash donate. And you see the $1,000 button, you're hovering over the $5,000 button. And what, what I would say to you is, That when you contribute right now, that helps us in this final period where Republicans are trying to confuse voters about how to cast ballots, what their voting rights are going to be. We have one of the strongest voter protection operations I think the country's ever seen, certainly the strongest we've ever had in a a midterm in Wisconsin history. We will be working individually with voters, making sure that local clerks actually follow the rules to make it possible that every vote will count. Wisconsin elections over and over come down to a couple of votes per precinct. Four out of the last six presidential races here came down to less than one percentage point. Our governor's race in 2018 was 1.1 percentage points, or as I like to say, a Wisconsin landslide. These are super close elections. And when it gets down like that, you, you know, you got to have your message, you have to have your candidate go everywhere, but then you have to get the mechanics right of making sure people know exactly where and when they can go to early vote, of finding out if there's some error on their absentee ballot envelope that they can go in and cure that ballot. We have a 100% follow-up rate. With any incoming, either through our field team or for people calling our voter protection hotline, we need to be ready for Republicans to try to to topple an election that they've lost. And that, that final stretch, it's its like they call the last mile problem in telecommunications. If you don't actually close the deal, you can lose an election in a hyper-close state like Wisconsin. So that's what you're investing in. And it could make all the difference from the, the governor's race that we need to protect voting rights in order to be able to win the presidency in 2024, to the Senate race that could determine the majority, whether Mitch McConnell can block future Supreme Court nominees or, or maybe get us the 50-second vote that we need to codify Roe versus Wade and pre- restore reproductive freedom. In our country to down ballot races. The, the last thing I'll add on this Republicans so gerrymandered our state legislature with an assist from Republicans on our state Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court that we are fighting off a GOP attempt to grab super majorities in the state legislature. And by investing in our state party, you support the work on every level of politics at once.
2: Well, you convinced me.
0: Uh, <laughs> that really, <yeah>. <laughs> yeah, you can I donate right now, James. <laughs> so-
2: uh, you know, we don't have great differentials in between the Senate and, and the gubernatorial candidates. And, and at, at at what point, how much difference do you think? In, I'm trying to frame this correctly. If if Barnes gets 52%, then that almost means for sure that Evers wins. It? What's the number at which one of the other gets it that it carries the other one in?
0: So the interesting thing is that in previous years, there's actually been huge differences between the Senate and the governor's races. Right. Uh, the, right. the biggest one was 2018. There was a 10 point difference because the Republican running for Senate by the by election day, everyone knew ab to an absolute certainty that she would take away their protections for people with pre-existing conditions. She would attack health care and shred health care. And we knew it came down to a single vote in the Senate. Um, so that was a, a landslide. The governor's race was much, much closer. This time, I think they are much more likely to be very close, in part because, you know, Governor Evers and Mandela Barnes served together and, and have the, uh, the same record of delivering for working people across the state, also because this question of an abortion ban. Wisconsin has a ban that was passed in the year 1849, and it has, again, no exceptions for rape or incest. And suddenly, Republicans are saying, hey, this is in effect. All clinics, all hospitals that provide abortion care have, have shut down those services right now. The governor is suing to overturn that ban with the attorney general, Josh Call, whose race is important, too. Tim Michaels says that the 1849 law passed before women had the right to vote. And you can tell. Uh, he says that's an exact mirror. That's a direct quote of his position. So that's happening in Wisconsin. But meanwhile, Lindsey Graham is here pushing for a national abortion ban. So if, if you think that people should be able to decide you know when and whether to start a family in this country, you've got to win the Senate race and the governor's race. And this is motivating voters who are frankly, coming off the sidelines in every part of Wisconsin right now. I think these races are going to look pretty similar uh, because of the very specific giant attacks on our freedoms that Republicans are perpetrating at this exact moment.
1: I figured you'd send one of those contributions to Lindsay, but go ahead, James.
2: <laughs> we'll turn back to Al. Generally, Democratic pollsters and, and campaigns are telling me that from the start of the summer to Labor Day, they've seen between a 3 and 6% improvement in the bottom Democratic line. Is that comport what you've seen in Wisconsin?
0: That does. And the biggest reason for it is that the enthusiasm gap between Republicans and Democrats, whether people say they are fired up to vote, that has completely disappeared. And, you know, you can see that in special elections around the country. We can absolutely see it in Wisconsin. Uh, That said, we didn't have our Senate nominee in, you know, the beginning of the summer. Our primary was August 9th. And we didn't have the Republican Gov nominee. So in a lot of ways, this election started on August 9th, right as as the kind of rubber met the road on Democrats showing what they're they're made of, passing these laws that, that deliver on our values, and Republicans going fully off the deep end in trying to attack freedoms that people have assumed were rock solid for for the last half century. All
1: right, Uh, Ben, uh, with all the gerrymandering, there's only one competitive U.S. House seat, potentially competitive. Ron Kine is retiring. Republicans and expert uh,
0: analysts like Dave Wasserman are saying this is leaning Republican.
1: You have any chance to hold that seat?
0: So I think we have a shot. And I will also say if this is if this is the year that it might be, the first congressional district, Paul Ryan's old seat, it's now the, the underlying partisan makeup is similar to Wisconsin's third congressional seat, slightly red tilted. The Democratic candidate is named Ann Rowe, and her her, her stickers and, and billboards say Roe is on the ballot. She is running a 100% crystal clear race to, to restore the the you know freedom to make decisions about how people can use their bodies that the people counted on. So that might be a sleeper. But in the third congressional district, the more people tune in, the better off we are. What we can see crystal clear is that when people find out that Brad Paff, our candidate, he's a multi-generation farmer, grew up on a dairy farm in La Crosse. He, a colleague once said he bleeds manure. This is a guy who understands rural Wisconsin like nobody else. <laughs> Versus Derek Van Orden, who was at the insurrection. He was on Capitol grounds, watching people uh, storm the Capitol. He's currently on probation for trying to bring a loaded gun on a plane. His uh, biggest claim to fame in in the district, which he moved to, is that he went into a a, a library in Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin, that noted liberal bastion where there was a a LGBT book display. And he got so mad and started just lighting into this teenage library intern, she felt threatened. He then checked out every single book from that display in order to make sure no one walking into that library could, (laughs) could, could see what they had on display there. After that news came out, people started sending donations of LGBT books. So the Prairie du Chien Library is, I think, the best stocked LGBTQ book display uh, and section in the state of Wisconsin. <laughs> this guy is, is, is a complete mismatch for one of the purplest districts in America. And when people know him, they don't want to support him.
1: That, I'm gonna, for, I'm one more, and I'll turn it back to James. Uh, we had a guest on last week from Michigan, and we asked him what happened to the Republican Party of George Romney, Bill, Bill Milliken, and others, and it's now dominated by Trump crazies. The same thing is true in Wisconsin. Going back a longer time, Mel Laird, Bill Steiger, Tommy Thompson. Uh, th- this is a party now that has turned hard right. What happened?
0: It's it's kind of stunning, and if you talk to old line Republicans, I mean, we have former Republican county party chairs who are now signing up with the Democratic Party. The it's a little bit like I, I was just uh, reading something that said like fifty percent of the Republicans in the House who were there before Trump have either retired, gotten defeated in primaries, uh, or 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 lost in general elections. It's almost a total turnover, and. Th- Part of this is the Trumpification of the GOP, but part of it goes a little deeper. Scott Walker, Ron Johnson, the kind of Tea Party wave, hugely, hugely supported by the Koch Network, the Bradley Foundation, this far-right foundation in in, uh, in Milwaukee. Um, the biggest funder of the Stop the Steal protest is Dick Uline, who you know lives right on the border of Wisconsin and Illinois and is a huge funder for Republican Party operations here. It's a radical fringe that's caffeinated by this network of right-wing talk radio hosts who just goose their their listeners to flood Republicans with calls if they refuse to do the impossible, like decertifying the 2020 election, which, believe it or not, has become a major issue in Republican primaries here. Will you go back in time and overturn the last election? Uh, They've lost their way. And they've lost their way so much that they've also lost touch with a state that's in its bones is still pretty pragmatic. It's just Wants to, our state motto is forward. We just want to like actually move forward and get things done. And Republicans can't decide if they want to go back to, to 2020 or to 1849. Whichever way you cut it, that's the wrong direction. Or maybe
1: Joe McCarthy. Uh, James, we have time for one more question before the chairman goes to check all those uh, well, $1,000 $1, boxes uh, that, have, that have come Ms. in.
2: Mr. Chairman, not so much a, a formal question, but observation. I have really strong connections to Wisconsin. My, I, I was just in, I'm in London now, and I was just in Ireland for a Family reunion, and I saw the house that my great grandfather was born in in County Monaghan, who immigrated uh, and ended up in Wisconsin, where he was a officer at the end of the war in the Union Army. <laughs> moved to Louisiana, was a classic carpetbagger. <laughs> so, I, I have I have great connections to your state. And I always think about it, I laugh, my dad was a college boxer, and you're probably too young to remember this, but the University of Wisconsin was the kind of Notre Dame of college boxing of the Yankees back in the thirties, forties, and maybe early fifties. And all he could talk about was going to Madison for a college boxing match in February If how cold it was. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Look, we have cold winters and warm hearts here. This is a this is a state where there's a tremendous amount of community, even with all the polarization, even with the divide-and-conquer tactics Republicans have brought to our state. Walk into any bar, and we have a lot of bars in our state, and people will oh. buy you a drink <laughs> and get to know you. It's a it's a great place to be, and we just want to restore the, the soul of our state.
1: Ben Wickler, I'll tell you how much in the tank we are to you. We've gone through this. We know you have to go. We've never once mentioned the Green Bay Packers after last
0: week. <laughs> so, <laughs> things can change. We've demonstrated that politically. We'll demonstrate that this season.
1: Ben, you're a great guest. Thank you. Good luck, and we'll be we'll be back in touch.
2: Thank you, Ben. Good luck to you. If I can help you, let us know, please.
1: Okay, James. Now the questions from our always, always attuned and smart and insightful listeners uh zella in los angeles uh wants to ask you why is the democrats or president biden are not addressing immigration they're giving the republicans talking points to hammer on their platforms all day about immigration
2: well you know <laughs> it, it is a it's an issue and and i i i think the idea to say we don't have immigration without christ is not a problem is not the right thing it, it, there is a problem it is an issue The problem is we live in a country that people want to come to, right? That's why people are showing up, because you have a strong job market. I'll just make one more point. If you take a mother, you know, 31-year-old mother with a, you know, 7-year-old and a 4-year-old from Guatemala that walks 500 miles to the border, that's a motivated person. I'm sorry. That person is not a villain. And— they don't—you know, it, it, it's a problem, and it's a problem caused by prosperity in America. If you, you want to drop immigration, then have an unprosperous country. But it is a problem. We Obviously, it's a work in progress. We can do better. we got to—you know, asylum laws have been there. It is a complex and complicated issue, but I, I don't think it's anything we need to run away from. And by the way, people like the idea of immigration. I don't think we should—I I love immigrant people.
1: Just love them. Every single piece, every study, every piece of data shows that immigration helps the American economy. Uh, you know, ask your friend Mitch Landrieu if you could have rebuilt New Orleans after the yeah. hurricane without immigrants. would have been impossible. Uh, Mike Bloomberg uh, has noted that the American economy would go into a tailspin without, Im- without immigrants. You know, and I think, frankly, we would have done better the last couple of years if we'd had more immigrants despite the tight. Uh, labor market but uh you know yeah, republicans I are demagoguing it'd, it'd the issue how, how many
2: how many roofers in new orleans or houston you think were born in the united states i'll give you a good guess three <laughs> that many
1: i don't know i'm, I'm being <laughs> i'm trying to be cautious here but <laughs> kevin in Iowa, island washington says, can you share some practical advice about how to balance what we read in the news with some semblance of hope that the problems of today and tomorrow will be solved? To what degree is it better to be blissfully in the dark versus staying attuned to an onslaught of depressing, disturbing news over which we have no little control? Well, Kevin, first of all, there is some bad news out there and people need to know about the bad news. I mean, the storming the Capitol on uh, January the 6th, uh, denying uh, that the... Uh, that we had an honest election, which we did. That's bad news, which you need to know about. And I agree, there's some negativity in some of it. uh, We had Steve Kotkin on talk uh, about Ukraine and Russia uh, two weeks ago, and his advice was don't watch cable news. Well, I think that's probably a little bit of a reach. But, uh, you know, you can be selective. You can find... I think well informed news it has sometimes it's negative in a lot of uh, in a few print organizations and a few broadcast organizations so so Kevin, uh you know you have to be more selective,
2: yeah you know it is, uh, every time you know in every period you have good news and bad news again, right now, two best pieces of news I know is child poverty is down fifty nine percent and the ukrainians are are getting back territory. Could all this reverse tomorrow? Of course it can, and you know have we having terrible inflation problems, and you know we had a terrible day in the stock market, and we have political divisions and democracies at risk, but there's also things to be like hopeful about, and man, if you when you're sitting here in Britain and you think about the the country when the queen was had a coronation 1952 and where it is today in 2022 it it hadn't been a a great 70 years Uh, and and maybe justifiably so but you know things change i mean the screw the screw of history turns and we got real deep problems that we've had some remarkable accomplishments yeah i just hope we can get this crime
1: thing back under control that we had for a long time and and the beginnings, at least, of maybe addressing climate change like we haven't before. Yeah, that's a, the, yeah the we've never done that before. That, right. That, 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 you know, and once you start something, you
2: know, the most important step in any journey is the first step. <laughs> and thanks to Joe Biden and, and, and Senator Joe Manchin, we've taken the first step.
1: Yep. <laughs> Kelly in New London, Connecticut, says, no, it's evidence submarine has come out of, isn't it? Yeah, It is. Kevin McMullen was endorsed by the Utah State Democratic Party as a way to unite cross-party unity for the midterms. McMullen is a former Republican, now an independent. How effective will this endorsement be in encouraging other independent races across the country to unite Democrats and anti-Trump Republicans, James?
2: So, so Utah is, is a really kind of different state. I mean, it, it's a Republican state, don't don't get me wrong. But they don't like Trump. Right. And one of the the the, the, the like... But people made a fool of themselves. There was this kind of thing that Mike Lee was a kind of thoughtful conservative. All right. And he was pretty far right, but he was I think he went to, you know, some prestigious university or something. And His people father was get, solicitor general. Yeah. And people were willing to give him the benefit of the doubt on everything. He's he's no better than Ron Johnson. He's just another non-thinking, reflective, extreme right-wing asshole. And, I, and he's in trouble because I think people in Utah see that. They, they, they're very—I've been—I actually like going to Utah. It's all he says. is a great town, great city. I've spoken up at Utah State. I've obviously been up there in park cities and everything. And they are a, a, a conservative people, but they don't like Trump that much. And Mike Lee— i think I think Mitt Romney more fits the the you know direction at state by far than Mike Lee, but boy, everybody wanted to say nice things about Mike Lee at one time. It's like Bill
1: Barr, you know of Rod Rosenstein <laughs> shit, Steve in Crumpler, North Carolina. I gotta find no out where Crumpler, North Carolina is James. Uh, I'm going to combine that. North Carolina John Crumpler was, I, I, I know I remember. I know I'm going to combine was. that. Two questions. Steve in Crumpler and Henry in New Orleans uh, both asked similar questions. The Moore versus Harper decision, that's the one the North Carolina legislature is bringing that says basically uh, courts and anyone else has no say in the, uh, gerrymandering or determining election results. Steve says, just might seal the deal against democracy. And in the hands of a court that had already, the Supreme Court, gutted voting rights, overturned Roe, as well as turning on the corporate faucet to fund politicians. And Henry notes that this would give them the sole power to construct congressional districts. We ask how much of a net loss it would be. It would be humongous. If I think you can make a case that uh, you would, it would mean, I don't know, 20, 25 House seats. And what it is, it's just it's an outrageous abdication of the rule of law. The idea that state Supreme Courts have no say in state constitutions. I mean, these people who love to go back to the founders. I mean, it was on a federal level, but a, but a, a, a separation of powers. And with one of the three powers checking the other and checking both. Uh, this And conservative uh, lawyers and scholars like Michael Ludig say this is an indefensible, destructive move. The case is going to be argued in October. And I want to tell you there's a lot at stake, James.
2: Yeah, you know, uh, again, our, our friend Mike Lee, uh, and I'm pretty sure, fact check me if I'm wrong, I apologize. But I'm pretty sure I'm right. He said democracy is not the goal. Liberty is the goal. Well, to them, liberty means it's making as much money as you possibly can with as fewer taxes and as fewer regulations as you possibly can. And I think there are five people on the Supreme Court, maybe six, that agree with that. There's no way in the Constitution is the word democracy written. So who cares about that? What we really care about is the, to allow corporate America to rape and plunder the country with as low taxes as possible, pollute as much as you want— pay people as low as you want, and return as much as you can to your shareholders. That, that is the ultimate goal of the Supreme Court and a majority, a, a, a huge segment of the Republicans in Washington. And people have to realize that. They don't give a shit about democracy. Get you know,
1: that's not, out. That's not their goal. That's not what they're about. James Teddy in Durham, North Carolina, big Tar Heel uh, contingent writing in today. Oh yeah, yeah. Asks, does Sherry Beasley have a chance against Trump's pick Ted Budd? Hell, I think if if it continues the way it is,
2: not only do you have a chance, but I, 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 in bottom of them, we having a uh, North Carolina guest next week. So so please, and, and Albert this guest. But I don't think Cherry Beasley is any worse than fifty-fifty at all, based on a, a, a lot of different metrics. And you know, Morgan Jackson told me after twenty uh, twenty. By the way, Morgan is a, a friend of mine who's a kind of number one Democratic operative in North Carolina. He's the governor's guy. He was a state party chair. He was the whole thing. Says so people got under, underestimate our, our chances in twenty twenty two. And I went out there and I I said on this show, I met her and her husband and her children, and she is this is one impressive candidate. And Bud, he won't show up for anything. And he got like a, to the extent it matters, I don't know how much editorial in the Charlotte Observer matters, but it's traditionally been one of the better papers in the country. And I mean, they were just blistering on it. So not only
1: do we have a chance, I, I don't think we're any worse than 50 50. Yeah. Uh, ben in Mission Hills, California asks, what's the likelihood that since Trump was illegally holding secrets regarding details of foreign countries' uh, nuclear capabilities, that a foreign government would target, assassinate him to keep out of, uh, him out of office? Maybe I've read too many spy novels. Yeah, you probably have been. I don't. That's not what worries me about this. Uh, I think interestingly, you ought to read uh, Jim Fallows' latest breaking news newsletter. He has a long section from a a, a former top uh, national security official on the Espionage Act, and there's a section of the Espionage Act. I think it's section D, uh, but you can check that. That basically says that it is a crime for an official to knowingly refuse to turn over secret classified information that could harm. The United States or help an enemy by definition—that's what classified information is—and uh, I think there's no question that Trump, on that alone, uh, is culpable. So, but you're saying you don't think there's a chance he was trying to sell this? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just okay. I'm talking— No, no, we're, we're, no. We're, we're, no, no, we're, we're, no. no. no said, position? No, the, the 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 question you wanted to know if there'd be an effort to. Assassinate or go somebody to go after that information. I think that's too spy novelish. No, I don't
2: know. what But, about but
1: that. no, I don't know what he wanted so, to do with did, it. But it did, wasn't did, benign. Did,
2: this is my question about that. Give me not. Give me a non-catastrophic explanation for what they were doing. A benign right. one. Is there any any? Now nah, you can say well, whatever. I I, do, I cannot think of a a non-catastrophic. Outcome of them having this information, having it all people going in and out, uh, Anna de Rothschild, good God, read that story. It actually came out of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Some friends of mine had been pushing this and telling me about this for like eight, seven, eight months. I have no <laughs> idea why the Times and the Post didn't do it. Tell it's us a, again one, what it is, James. It's it's a woman of, of, of pseudonym. She she claimed she was running the Rothschilds, all right? And they have pictures of her Lindsey Graham and Trump. And she is best that most people can determine is a Russian spy. And she was hanging out at Mar-a-Lago. And the Post-Gazette broke the story. Uh, you, you, I'm not, you can guess who has been pushing this story, but I've been hearing this for like nine or ten months. And it's unbelievable. And it was just a giant con. That when, But the thing about con people— they all get conned. What was that movie with Robert Redford? And they had the, the bookmakers in Chicago and they conned them all. I, oh, I, yeah. I that. Yeah, I'm having a good moment. And they all all, all all, con artists get conned. And Anna Dorashiel, and I, I think she's back in Russia, I don't know where she is, conned the whole thing. And they were all lining up and you know they're such white trash, every one of them, and they thought they had some member of the aristocracy. They, they were falling all over. You got to
1: read the story. I will. It, I it's will. It's like got to make a movie of this. You know, Lynn, who is near Mount. I, sh- I should know this because I've been in Maine a fair amount, but I don't near Mountain. I hope I pronounced this correctly. Kata Katah- Katahinden. Anyways, K A. T-A-H-D-I-N. I I apologize, Lynn, for not knowing how to pronounce it, but Maine is a fabulous state. Uh, And she wants you, James, this is going to be a tough one for you. This is going to be a really hard one, so you've got to get ready. She wants you to please weigh in on Rick Scott's 11-point plan as it will affect Social Security and Medicare. I see conservatives constantly complaining about their small Social Security checks but never vote for a Democrat. So could you tell us and tell Lynn about the Rick Scott plan? So... If if
2: I said to to our viewers, do you name the three most unsympathetic people in American politics? The question would be: Is Mitch McConnell one, two, or three? All right, because he is simply the most unsympathetic human being that in in, in American politics. Or so if not, maybe Trump beats him or Lindsey Graham. I don't know. It's a it's a. I actually feel something. Rick Scott. The decision to make Rick Scott the chairman of the Republican Senate Committee because he had a lot of money and he thought it would be nifty. Is, and, of course, he and McConnell are publicly feuding. McConnell's trashing Rick Scott's candidates. They're back and forth. Rick, Rick Scott is, best I can determine, according to record, is, uh, well, should I call him a Medicare criminal? I'll leave that up to you. I think he paid like $1.7 billion dollars. In fines when he ran the healthcare medi- company right? Medicare over, of course, he's the state where you probably have the highest percentage of people on, on Medicare. But uh, in you know he beat Senator Nelson, who's a good friend of mine, who I love, by like a ten thousand votes. Uh, I think Rick Scott is 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 a giant asshole and a giant drag on the Republican Party, and is a man who's such an asshole he can actually give you two percent. Sympathy for Mitch McConnell, which is quite an accomplishment.
1: Well, t- well, but but just for a minute, tell Lynn about this 11-point plan he has.
2: Well, his 11-point plan is to sunset Social Security and Medicare, and is to tell if we get Bob Greenstein and talk about this that the hotel maid doesn't pay any income tax. Okay, which is true, but the hotel maid pays. Uh, Medicare tax, Medicaid tax, Social Security Tax, beer tax, prop you know, well of course property taxes are hanging on to her. If you live in New Orleans, she pays ten percent sales tax, everything else. So Rick Scott thinks that the working poor, or we've seen the staggering fifty-nine we don't we, we got we don't have enough children in child poverty. Let's have more. That's his answer. Right. I'm a moral man. We need more children going to bed Cold and hungry.
1: Oh, Jesus. What a, what a jerk. That waitress or that maid who's making 20000 bucks a year uh, is paying at least three, paying almost $3,000 uh, in payroll taxes. Now, she, hopefully she g- gets the earned income tax credit. But uh, Rick Scott uh, doesn't, James, he, he doesn't want anybody who's making $3 million a year to pay more taxes. Rick Scott, don't, he and Ron Johnson don't want to pay nothing. <laughs> <laughs> keep those questions coming. They're really good. I apologize to those of you who I didn't get to the questions this week. We'll try to get to them next week. Uh, but keep writing into at Politicon um, and tell us where you're from. Mm-hmm. Nothing to do. Not content Barr, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, who I once said had a spine, I apologize for saying that, he does not, and the Washington U.S. Attorney Jesse Liu, trying to curry favor for a promotion, indicted Craig for supposedly lying about his representation. It took a jury, recognizing this fraudulent case, only five hours to acquit Craig, as Berman says this was all about politics. Some people who should have known better, like liberal commentator Rachel Maddow, failed to adequately report and assailed Craig. And Skadden Arps, the supposedly distinguished white-shoe law firm where Craig was one of their top attorneys, dropped him like a bad habit. Never mind the rule of law presumption of innocence. He was scapegoated. I've known Greg Craig for years. He's been a valuable public official. Berman's revelations though I wish he'd told us all about this two years ago when he was fired for objecting to this partisanship, or a total vindication for him and others, and a searing indictment of Barr, Rosenstein, and the Skadden Law Firm. Oh, is it? And, and by the way, what they tried
2: to do to John Kerry? They wanted to prosecute him on some 1799 law, and they did everything they could. I, I mean, these people are criminals, okay? there are criminals the whole lot of them, and there was no Team Rudy and and, and Team Normal. They were all criminals, literally most every one of them. And and you're right, and that book is just stunning. The way that they used the Justice Department in, in like, unheard of ways. And it's Greg Craig, all right, but the John Kerry stuff was like, Gee whiz, man, these people have no bottom. They have nothing. And then when it all goes to hell in a handbasket, then Bard tries to douse himself in perfume and body powder so he doesn't stink as much, and it didn't, in my mind, didn't do any good. If it looks like a pig, sounds like a pig, smells like a pig, what is it, James? So one of, I think, in, in terms, and you mentioned that Laura Tyson is a, a regular listener of our show, and Laura, I hope you listen now, because there was a story in the New York Times by a journalist named Jason DePerle, who's been around for a long time, but I don't know if I know Jason that well, but I think he's a very reputable journalist, and the story said one of the most stunning facts about modern America that I could imagine. Do you realize between 1993, uh, let's see, what happened in 1993? In 2019, there was a 59 percent a 59% drop in child poverty, all right? And I had to listen to this shit during the 90s about Clinton's small board policies. And of course, what they found out was these targeted strategies of which people like Laura, Bob Rubin, Roger Altman, all right, even Larry Summers, had this obsession with the working poor and children poverty. They set into motion one of the great accomplishments of modern America. Because the whole thing used to be, yeah, they did Social Security and Medicare, and they drove elderly poverty down, but I now listen to this crap from the Atlantic and the New Republic and all of the everything else, but we hadn't done anything about child poverty. Wrong. We have done something about it and done, done just something. We've done a hell of a lot. And it all, and people built on it, and of course, Obamacare, the health insurance stuff helped a lot. But the idea that you can have targeted programs that are designed to help people can be effective is now shown to be well effective. And this, to me, as a Clinton person, is one of a major, staggering, breathtaking accomplishments of our America.
1: Well, I think that's right. I think Clinton deserves a lot of credit. Barack Obama deserves a lot of credit. And a lot of uh, legislators a lot, deserve a lot yeah. of credit. As the incomparable Bob Greenstein, a big report, found out, what they did, which was very, very smart, they expanded these programs. Whether well, it was the child tax credit, EI earned income tax credit, Medicaid, to cover not just the poor, but the working poor and people even in the lower uh, echelons of the middle class. Uh, and to make sure they don't fall into poverty. They've been remarkably successful. And, right. um, you know, you're right you know, a, a you're late, lot. Of, a sober. lot of people deserve a lot of
2: credit for a lot of things. George Washington is known as the father of the country. Bill Clinton is the father of the reduction in child poverty. Period. End of argument.
1: I just think there are a lot of fathers, but that's okay. But
2: Abraham Lincoln again, he was the one that started it. And well, it, by James the way, it the he earned the rate...
1: Started in 1996. I agree with you totally, okay. but the earned income tax credit was actually started by I, Russell I, Long in the 1970s. I, I, That's the I, okay. single greatest uh, redu- the reducer okay. of poverty. I, 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 I couldn't agree with you more on things that happened, but, you know, it didn't just begin in the 90s, although that Jason DeParle data is fascinating. Right. But it, it's not fascinating. It it It's uplifting. It's moral.
2: It is a great moral statement by the United States that we, redu- we reduce
1: child poverty by 59%. I agree. Just got to go a little bit further with the, with the next Congress. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carvell and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to Politics Warroom at gmail.com, or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsors, Sleep Me, Magic Spoon, and Raycon in the show notes. We thank you for supporting them. When you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics Forum on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review, and we'll be back next week with another show as we continue our war room planning.